and the eensy weensy spider. And all of a sudden, the fuller brush man senses that there is somebody behind Stop. him. And can you tell me your story? Horses. What did the horses do? We had lots of fun time walking the beach there and like touring the lighthouse. Welcome to the Appleseed Studio. The Appleseed is an hour that uses the power of great stories to help you make sense of the world and communicate with the people who are important to you. I'm Sam Payne, your host, and we're excited to bring you some great stories today. In this hour, we're thinking about courage, about being brave. Now, sometimes we find ourselves being brave in ways that are huge and make a big difference, and sometimes we find ourselves being brave in ways that are smaller in the grand scheme of things, even though they mean a lot to us and maybe to the people around us. And while sometimes we find ourselves wishing we had been braver in the face of one challenge or another, sometimes we surprise ourselves with just how brave we are. We're going to hear a story today about a brave girl who saves the life of her father with the help of her horse. It's a story with stuff like this in it. By the time I was able to see Dad and he was able to see me, he had been dragged over a quarter of a mile. That storyteller is Pippa White, who lives in Nebraska and specializes in bringing to life cool stories from history. And we'll hear a story about finding courage even when it doesn't seem like there's any light at the end of the tunnel, when help is hard to find and you have to dig deep. It's a story that's a little bit about me and a little bit about the C.S. Lewis story, Prince Caspian. Here's a moment from the film version of that story. Can you help? Of course as will you. Oh, I wish I was braver. If you were any braver, you'd be a lioness. Liam Neeson as Aslan the Lion and little Georgie Henley as Lucy Pevensey in a conversation about having courage to face a coming battle. We'll talk about that kind of courage. And we'll hear an actual radio drama from the golden age of radio dramas starring Gene Autry, the singing cowboy and head honcho of Melody Ranch. Gene will bravely set out to discover who's poisoning the cattle on Betty's ranch, and you'll be on the edge of your seat for every thrilling minute. So it's going to be a great hour, we think, and we're going to start with this story from Pippa White, who is inspired by the stories that come from history. These are thrilling, real-life tales, and Pippa tells each one as though it's happening to her, or rather, she shares the stories in character as the people to whom they happen. And in a moment, you'll experience what it's like to hear Pippa tell one of these terrific tales. But what's it like to tell them? What does telling stories from history do for the person who is on stage, being those characters. I asked Pippa what it does for her. Let me introduce you to her by playing for you what she said. It inspires me. It really does. Uh, it, it, it takes a human being from here to here. And I think that's what I like to see. I think life can be challenging, but I like stories of the human spirit resilience, and, you know, everything's going wrong, but I'm going to somehow make it right. So they, they inspire me. An introduction to Pippa White, who loves to tell stories from history, stories that tell about something that went wrong and how people set about to put it right. And we've got just such a story for you right now. It's a story of a girl and a horse and a brave and unexpected adventure. It's waiting for us in the Appleseed Performance Studio, along with our terrific studio audience. Let's listen to Pippa White with Ranger and Me. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate this very, very much. Now I have a story for the young people in our audience. This is a true story uh, written by a woman named Mavis Buckholtz. It happened to her when she was a girl, and I'm grateful to Mavis for letting me share her story. The story starts a little slowly, but I promise you it will pick up. <laughs> I was raised right smack in the middle of North Dakota. I was an only child until I was 11 years old, so I spent a lot of time alone or playing with my many pets. Horses were my great love. I was nine years old when I first met Ranger. He was a brown and white horse, a little taller than your 
average quarter horse of today. My dad had gotten him from a farmer about 50 miles from our place, and I was instructed never to ride that horse, never to even take it out of the barn, because it liked to run, and it might get away from me. But I had fallen in love with Ranger at first sight, so I spent hours getting to know him. And the great day came when he learned to trust me. And then the greater day came when my dad said I could ride him. Off we went onto the open prairie and we became inseparable. One of my chores every day was to bring in all the dairy cows from the big pasture. That was 320 acres of wide open prairie. My dad always insisted that I ride bareback no saddle for me. That way, if I was thrown or fell, I would not get entangled in the stirrups and be dragged. The summer that I was going on 11, my dad was asked by a friend of his who bought and sold horses if he wouldn't mind coming to a vacant farm about six miles from our place to help catch and load some wild horses. I was ecstatic, wild horses. I begged and begged to be allowed to go on and to go along and bring my horse as well. My mother wasn't crazy about the idea, but I couldn't pass up this chance, wild horses. My father finally relented and we put Ranger onto the truck. But when we got to the abandoned farm, all the wild horses were already in the corral, so there was no need for Ranger but I insisted. I had come to ride, and ride I would. So we took Ranger off the truck, put him in the barn, tied with his bridle on. And then my father went to help load those wild horses. One of the last horses became difficult to handle. So the men decided to snub the wild horse to a tame horse and get the renegade onto the truck that way. In the process of securing one horse to the other, the rope that was looped around the wild horse's neck and through the harness collar fell to the ground. And in all the hubbub, my dad stepped onto the coiled rope. There was so much dust generated by those two horses that it was impossible to see clearly. But in the blink of an eye, those two horses began to run. The truck driver and I strained through all that dust to find Dad, thinking that he was there holding onto that rope, trying to stop those horses. But when those two horses galloped out of the corral and onto the wide open prairie, we could see that Dad's hands were in the air. He was not holding onto that rope. He was being dragged by those two horses. The truck driver began to run after him. I froze, but only for one second when I remembered my horse in the barn. Ranger was upset by all the commotion, but I managed to climb up the side of the stall, jump on him, and then untie him. We left that barn at full gallop. By this time, my dad and those horses were quite some distance from the yard. By the time I was able to see Dad and he was able to see me, he had been dragged over a quarter of a mile, over grass and rocks. He kept leaning towards that rope around his ankle, trying to reach it, but he never could. Finally, the pain was so intense that he turned over onto his stomach, and all the while, those two horses were going at full gallop. As I rode up alongside Dad, he yelled at me to stop those horses. I knew that Ranger usually shied at a voice, but this time, for some reason, he didn't turn an ear in my dad's direction. We just kept bouncing along, headed for those two horses. As I came up alongside the harnessed horse, I realized that the only way I could stop those horses was to grab that horse around the neck. But as I had no saddle, I had nothing to hold on to, except Ranger's neck. So that's what I did. I threw myself out, caught that horse around the neck, held onto Ranger's neck, and there I hung between two of three racing horses. And they stopped. My dad sat up and began to 
untie the rope from around his ankle. Don't let go, he said. When he was free, I dropped to the ground, still holding on to my pony's reins. The other two horses raced to the edge of the pasture. The realization of what had happened didn't really register with me. I wasn't even 11 years old. I thought my dad would get up, brush himself off. We'd go get those two horses, bring them back, load them onto the truck. But when I turned to look at my father, I could not believe what I saw. He was covered with dirt and blood. The overalls that he had been wearing were torn away on the backside from the waist down, and flesh on his buttocks was torn away too, exposing bone. To this day, I don't know how my dad stood the pain. He just stood there on the prairie, pale as a ghost, and said, Good thing we brought your horse. The truck driver drove up and helped Dad into the cab. They headed for home. I rode those six miles home on Ranger as fast as his legs could carry me. When I got there, Mom already had Dad in the car and was driving out to Harvey Hospital, 50 miles away. My dad spent two weeks in the hospital. He came home after one week but had to go back for blood poisoning. But he made a complete recovery and lived to farm and ranch for many, many more years. The rope burn on his ankle never went away, though. And Ranger? Ranger and I continued to be best friends. As a matter of fact, this is only one story about Ranger and me. A girl saves her father's life in just one story about that girl and her horse, Ranger. The story was told by Pippa White, who specializes in telling stories from history. And after hearing Pippa's story, we're excited for a little talk back around the desk with friends. That's coming up. I'm Sam Payne. We've just come from the Appleseed Performance Studio where we heard, along with our fantastic studio audience, a terrific tale of bravery on horseback from Pippa White, a story called Ranger and Me. And it's time for a little studio talk back about that story. I'm joined around the desk by Carly Robison, our wonderful audio engineer. Carly, it's great to have you with me. Happy to be here. And the producer of the Appleseed, Brian Tanner. Brian, thanks for joining me here as well. Great to be here. Brian Tanner, where did that story take you? Yeah, one thing that I've really loved uh, this year is my six-year-old daughter has told us that her resolution for the year is to face her fears. (laughs) (laughs) And she will do various things, and then she'll come back later, and she said, I did that to face my fears. Wow. And they're very simple fears compared to, you know, jumping from, you know, out to grab a racing wild horse. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's more like daring to eat uh, a new food on your plate, yeah. you know. Yeah. But for her, it's a big deal, and it's it's facing her fears, and it shows her that she can be brave. Yeah. Carly, what about you? Where did that story take you? This story reminded me of my mom right away. My mom is amazing. Her favorite people would be the unsinkable Molly Brown, if you know that story, and John Wayne. I just thought this was perfect for her. This fits her character. She is a a really brave woman. And so as she was telling the story of this little girl, my mom grew up on a ranch, on a farm with lots of animals. And so I just pictured my mom being right there next to her. And I was just so amazed with her bravery and that she even had the idea to go, you know, jump on her horse and to go run after her dad. And that's just something I could really see my mom doing. I uh, think about bravery all the time. I think I, I, I wonder if I'm going to be courageous enough to face the next challenge. And sometimes we find ourselves having to be especially brave when we can't see any other help coming, you know. Mm-hmm. We find ourselves having to sort of stand up and do the things that need to be done ourselves. It's always a challenge every time. 
And thinking about that has me thinking about this. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. And uh, here it is. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. When I was a kid, I loved the books about Narnia, the magical land created by C.S. Lewis. It was my second grade teacher, Miss Winger, who introduced me to those books. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first one of those books published, was the very first elementary school teacher read aloud in my young experience. The adventure of the Pevensey siblings, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, in that magical land, and the majestic lion, Aslan, Aslan of great wisdom and transcendent power who comes to rescue Narnia from the power of the White Witch. I loved that story, and Miss Winger must have loved reading it to us because no sooner had she closed the cover on The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe than she opened the cover for us on the second book published in the series, Prince Caspian, about how the Pevensies come to the aid of the brave prince and all true Narnians against the armies of the cruel usurper, King Miraz. It was only after our read-aloud with Miss Winger that I found out my dad had worn paperback copies of all seven Narnia books standing side by side on our big bookshelf at home. And it was my dad who helped me see those stories as faith stories, and Aslan the lion, the divine savior of that world, as a symbol for the divine savior of this one. The notion of an imaginary story filled with symbols to teach us about things in our own real world, in this case, the world of my faith, was super exciting for me. It was like solving a mystery. It was like knowing the secret answer to some enormous question. I asked for a box set of the Narnia books for Christmas, and a year later I got them. And in fourth grade, though every student in Mr. Bodell's class had to completely clear his or her desk before we went to lunch or home after school, Mr. Bodell let me keep my Narnia books standing in their box on the corner of my desk. It was a big deal. Little did I realize just how big a deal. Fast forward now maybe two decades, maybe two and a half. I'm an adult. I'm beginning to make my way in the world, and I've fallen on, well, I've fallen on a rough patch. It seems like money is tight, prospects are few, and I'm far away from home and family. And in addition to working hard and studying hard and thinking hard as a person of faith, I'm also praying hard. Please, please send, well, send help. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I felt like nothing, not the working, not the studying, not the thinking, and not even the praying is giving me even a glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel. The heavens just feel like they're closed up. And I don't know what to do when there's no help on the horizon. And I feel like I might begin to despair. And in that state, I take myself to the movies. I buy a single matinee ticket to see the film version of Prince Caspian, that Narnia story Miss Winger had read to me in second grade. And I sit alone in the dark, and I watch as the story of Prince Caspian unfolds, the story of the true Narnians led by the young prince and the four Pevensey children impossibly outnumbered by the armies of King Miraz and their fight to remain courageous even though they seem doomed, even though there's absolutely no light at the end of the tunnel. In that story, it must be said that Aslan, the lion, doesn't come to the rescue immediately, though they hope and pray that he will. He doesn't come until it's almost too late. Well... I sit there in the theater in a time when I'm trying to be courageous myself in my real life. And I think it's easy to be brave when the lion is on the hill shaking his glorious golden mane and routing your enemies with his mighty roar. But what about when you feel dark and alone and he hasn't come? What then? What is expected of us? what is expected of me. Am I the only one who's felt this way? I can't be.
Now, your mileage may vary with the movie versions of the Narnia stories. I don't feel inclined to make an argument for those movies having a place among the world's great films, but on screen that day, I watched the Pevensey children standing against impossible odds with the Christian courage that I decided I needed to have, even though the heavens seemed closed to me. And I left the theater determined to fight on, whether I got help or not. Well, I got to say I did get help. The heavens did open as surely as Aslan the lion came to rescue the Pevensies and Caspian and all of Narnia. But not for a while. And when the heavens opened, I hope they opened to find me standing in courage and ready to help the helpers help me, if that makes any sense. Since then, other stories that I loved as a child have come back to rescue me, to change and teach me. But that one, Prince Caspian, that was a big one. It was the story that taught me how difficult it is sometimes in our world to keep being brave, even when there's no help on the horizon, to hang in there, to be brave and to remember the story of your bravery. After all, It will come back to you to be the help you need when you have to be brave again. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. Thoughts about bravery springing from that terrific story shared by Pippa White for our studio audience in the Appleseed Performance Studio. I wonder what kind of stories might emerge if around your own dinner table or living room, you ask the question, what's the bravest thing you ever had to do? Would you hear the story of how your dad proposed to your mom? Would you hear the story of how your big sister applied for her dream job? Would you hear the story about how your little brother defended something he felt strongly about in the face of people making fun of him? I bet you'd hear some good ones. And I bet you'd grow closer with those people around the table having shared those experiences. That's kind of what happens. Stories about when we were brave show who we are when the odds seem stacked against us, when it might be easier just to walk away or run. And at the top of the hour, you heard a story about a girl and a horse in a daring rescue. And darned if that story about a horse didn't put us in mind of cowboys, and darned if being put in mind of cowboys didn't take us, well, right here. It's time for a little radio storytelling history here on the Appleseed. It's the early 1950s, and weekly listeners to the CBS radio network tuning in each week would hear the king of the musical cowboys broadcasting live from the Columbia Square KNX Playhouse in Hollywood. It sounded something like this. I'm back in the saddle again Out where a friend is a friend Where the long Gene Autry's Melody Ranch, a variety show filled with music and jokes and each week a cowboy adventure story. Audiences came to know Gene's cast of characters like Raindrop the Ranch Cook and Pat Buttram and Johnny Bond the comic ranch hands. And each week Gene would tell a story that usually sprang from something that was going on at the ranch, some problem. And often the story came to teach someone a lesson, like this time when Gene caught Buttram and Bond stealing a couple of Raindrop's pies. Here's how it unfolds on the Melody Ranch. Hey, Buttram, Bond. Yeah? Where do you two think you're going? Who, who, us? Yes, you. What are you holding behind your back? Uh, which hand? Look, <laughs> never mind the smart remarks. All right, all right. If, if you must know, we uh, each got a pie. Oh, your I pie. see. A pie. And uh, do you just happen to know what Raindrop would do if she just happened to catch you stealing those pies? 
Don't worry. She ain't gonna find out. We're much too slick for her. Oh, so you think you're too smart to get caught, huh? Uh, we not only think we are, we know we are. You know, it's a funny thing, just what you said. Because I just happened to be thinking about a similar incident that took place around here not too long ago. And it concerns a guy who had the same idea that you two have. You mean about stealing pies? No, but he did think he was too smart to get caught. Well, don't just keep us standing here in suspenders. What happened? Well, Pat, as I remember it now, this story all began one morning a little over five years ago while I was riding into town to pick up the weekly mail. At any rate, as was my custom, I was just cutting across the Carson Ranch down the road when I heard somebody calling me. Sure thing, Miss Betty. Oh, oh, champ. Oh, boy. Hi there. Hi, Jean. How's my favorite gal? Not so good, I'm afraid. Oh, how come? Well, early, early this morning, I found six more head of our cattle dead up on the North Range. Oh, gosh, I'm sorry to hear that, Miss Betty. Does your Uncle Dan know about it? No, not yet. But since his accident two years ago, as you know, he hasn't been able to even move out of that wheelchair. And, well, I just hate to give him anything else to worry about. I don't blame you. Look, I've got an idea. Oh? Why don't the two of us take a quick ride over and check on those dead steers? Maybe together we can find out something that'll give us a little more to go on. Tell me, when when did you first find these steers, Miss Betty? Early this morning, Jean. I was riding over to Talbot's to pick up a couple of new books for Uncle Dan. Why? I was just wondering. They haven't been dead very long. How can you tell? Well, first answer me a question. How close is your nearest water hole from here? Oh, a little over a mile, I'd say. You sure? I'm positive. Why do you ask? Because, look here at this steer's jaw. Notice how it's all swollen and puffed up? Oh, but, Jean, couldn't that have happened, well, just because the animal died? Oh, I doubt it. In fact, I doubt it very much. No, Miss Betty, my guess is right. These cattle have been poisoned. Poisoned? Poisoned? Betty and Uncle Dan are in a tough spot, aren't they? Each episode of Gene Autry's Melody Ranch featured this same kind of trouble. But don't worry, Gene Autry has cracked tougher cases than this. Whoever's behind the poisoning of Betty's cattle is going to have to move pretty fast to keep ahead of old Gene. Here's more of Gene Autry's Melody Ranch on the Appleseed. But Gene, I still can't understand it. Betty and me don't have an enemy in the world. Why would anyone want to poison our stock? Beats me, Dan. I've checked the cattle's mash, every water hole on your layout within finding, without finding one trace of any poison anywhere. Well, that's not the worst of it, though. Well, I don't know whether you know it or not, Gene, but Uncle Dan and I had to borrow nearly $5,000 on this place last year. The bank in town took back a first mortgage, and, well... And what Betty's trying to say, Gene, is this... The note's due and payable the 10th of next month, and we was counting on the sale of those steers to meet that note. I see. Uh, if I could only get out of this dad-blamed wheelchair... Oh, it's not your fault, Uncle Dan. Well, that's nice of you to say, child, but I'm afraid it is. You see, when your dad left you this ranch, he left it in your name, but he wanted me to make sure you always made a living off of it. And now it looks like I failed both you and your dad. Oh, but that's not true, Uncle Dan. Tell him it's not true, Gene. Of course it's not, Dan. Besides, it seems to me that you're giving up before you're beaten. Oh, I haven't given up, Gene. I'm just a little discouraged, I guess, that's all. Well, don't be. And Miss Betty, you see that he gets a smile back on his face. In the meantime, Johnny and me will do some more checking. Then uh, I'll see you both again in the morning. And so, Pat, the next morning early, Johnny and I started out to cover Carson's ranch from one end to the other, looking over every inch of it for some sign of poison. 
But by two o'clock, all we had found was five more dead steers. Anyway, late in the afternoon, we had just pulled up, give the horses a little breather, and that's when I saw it. Hey, Johnny. Yeah. Come here, quick. What's up? Did you find something? I'd say I have. Look at this grass. What about it? It's just plain old dead grass, ain't it? Look again. The dead grass is right next to those salt blocks that they've got placed around the ranch for the cattle to lick on. Wait a minute. You trying to tell me that the grass killed the cattle? No, Johnny. In fact, it's just reverse. The cattle killed the grass. What? That's right. You see, certain poisons make cattle sick to their stomachs. And when the cattle get sick, it kills the grass. Holy jumping jackrabbits. You mean that maybe... Unless I'm mistaken, Johnny, I mean that somebody's poisoned those salt blocks. And there it is. Gene Autry, the singing cowboy, has figured out how whoever it is who's poisoning Betty's cattle is managing to do it. Poisoned salt blocks, of course. But we still don't know who's poisoning those salt blocks, and we don't know why. But hang in there. Gene's still figuring stuff out. And we feel pretty good about saying he's going to get the culprit in the end. After all, the story has to work itself out somehow into a lesson for Pat Buttram and Johnny Bond, the pie thieves. Here's the rest of the mystery of Betty's cattle on Gene Autry's Melody Ranch. And we're happy to bring it to you on the Appleseed. First, though, I had to make darn sure of my ground. So I had Johnny Hyatt tailored into town with a block of salt, have it analyzed. In the meantime, I did a little analyzing of my own. Analyzing something else I saw there but those patches of dead grass. Anyway, two hours later, when Johnny got back from the Marshall's laboratory in town, I met him at Melody Ranch, compared notes with him, then headed over to Carson's Ranch to have dinner with Miss Betty and Uncle Dan. Well, uh, you say, Gene, that those salt blocks were definitely poisoned, huh? That's right, Dan. According to the marshal's office report, they'd all been sprinkled with arsenic trioxide. Arsenic? But, Gene, arsenic has a bitter taste. Well, I wouldn't think the cattle would touch it. Well, that threw me, too, for a while, Miss Betty. But the man who did this was pretty clever. You see, he knew that arsenic when mixed with trioxide, is tasteless in salt. I know, Gene, but we still don't know who's doing it. You don't, Dan. But I'm pretty sure I do. Oh. First, though, I think you both ought to know that somebody is trying to force you to sell this ranch. What? So that's why our cattle are being poisoned. That's right, Miss Betty. Now then, uh, will you, when will you be 21? Why, next week, the 14th. Tuesday, to be exact. And after that, everything is legally yours. Your Uncle Dan, as your guardian, has no claim to anything. Is that right? Well, I suppose that's so, but I... Miss Betty, I hate to tell you this, but... I think you said enough, Autry. Uncle huh? Dan, you're walking! Sure, I'm walking. I'm walking because your friend Autry here has been doing too much talking. But this little gun I got says that neither one of you will be doing much but, more. Well, what does this all mean? I'm afraid it means just what I'm saying it meant, Miss Betty. Your Uncle Dan was poisoning your cattle, so you'd be forced to sell the ranch. <laughs> you figured things out pretty good, didn't you, Autry? It didn't take much figuring, Dan. I suppose you know about the railroad, too. Not for sure, but I guessed as much. What about the railroad? Your Uncle Dan also learned that the main line was putting in a new spur right across your property, Miss Betty. What's more, he probably found out they'd be willing to pay plenty for this land. So, he figured after he had forced you to sell by killing off your cattle... He's going to take the money and leave you high and dry. But, but I still don't understand. How are you walking, Uncle Dan? You haven't walked in two years. <laughs> yeah, that's what everybody thought. This game leg I've been faking was just part of my plan to pull this little deal off. After all, no one would suspect a helpless cripple of spreading poison around. You had your plan pretty well worked out, didn't you, Dan? But right now, I've got a few plans of my own. <laughs> Drop it, Dan. Drop it, I said. Now get up. Uh, what? what? What are you going to do to me? For killing defenseless animals? Believe me, not half as much as I'd like to. As for trying to swindle your niece, well, suppose we leave that up to a judge and a jury. 
And so you see, boys, there's no such thing as a foolproof crime, whether it's stealing pies or killing cattle. <laughs> well, maybe not, but look, answer me just one small question, will you? What? Well, the guy in the wheelchair. Whatever made you suspicious of him in the first place? A footprint. A footprint? Where? A footprint I found out by that salt block. You oh. see, Pat, Dan Carson was no more crippled than you or me. But he wore a brace as a cover-up. It hooked down under his right shoe and left an impression in his footprint. <laughs> now, if that don't just beat all. <laughs> well, come on, Johnny, let's hurry over and eat these pies before they get cold. That's a good idea. Hey, just a minute. Yes, something you wanted? Do you mean to tell me that you two can stand right there and listen to me prove that crime doesn't pay and still, and still go right ahead and steal those pies? Well, you see, it's like this, Mr. Artery. Johnny and me know that crime don't pay, and you know that crime don't pay, but our stomach wasn't listening to that story. <laughs> Well, that's the way it works out on Gene Autry's Melody Ranch. Though it looked like Uncle Dan's evil plan to trick Betty out of her ranch looked foolproof. Gene cracked it, sure enough, and then used it to teach Pat and Johnny a lesson about stealing raindrops pies. A lesson that every little bit of those cow hands but their stomachs understood. And at the end of another adventure on the Melody Ranch, thanks to you for joining us for a little radio storytelling history on the Appleseed. It's such a pleasure for me to bring you these stories every time we get together on the Appleseed. I've loved thinking today about courage, about being brave. And we've talked about bravery big enough to save a life and bravery that digs deep even when it looks like there's no help on the horizon. And we want to take you one more place today. There's a brave person to whom I want to introduce you. This is Sherry Call. She's a musician. That's kind of like a Travis pick, um, picking style. And so I, I can do that, um, but what I can't do are these, you know, face-melting guitar solos <laughs> that we really needed for this face show. Face-melting solos? What show is Sherry talking about? Well, that's the story we want to tell you. Here's Sherry talking a little bit about her relationship with the guitar. I play the acoustic guitar. I've played for a lot of years, but I play easy chords. <laughs> um, you know, I picked it up in college. I, I've played other instruments just kind of... I'm not great at any one instrument, but I love to write songs. And she does. In fact, Sherry has a catalog of, like, a dozen albums. This is Sherry. With a heart made of wind, I will run through And this is Sherry. There's a big yellow moon in the sky tonight. And this is Sherry. I can't promise that I'll always get it right. I will walk you through the night. So she's no hack musician and no hack guitar player, but she's an acoustic guitar player. I, I feel most comfortable with acoustic guitar. And that's the setup to this story, a story about being brave. And the story really begins right here. A couple years ago, I won an electric guitar in a songwriting contest. And so that was really exciting. I, I love the electric guitar. I've just always had other people do it. And the electric guitar is not all she won. It was really exciting. They also sent me a couple of distortion pedals with it, which if you know anything about my music, you'll think it's funny <laughs> that I have these crunchy, you know, um, distortion pedals. Now, this story takes place not at one of Sherry's shows, where Sherry and her musician friends play Sherry's music, but rather at a place where Sherry has a gig teaching young musicians. I teach to high school age students. It's kind of an after-school studio uh, where people come and take lessons, and I also direct this um, pop music program where we help the students learn pop songs. They have choreographers. Um, they have... They put on this big show, they, so they learn covers, and then I also help them write songs. And 
Twice a year, we do these really big shows, and we hire a whole band to back them up. It's a huge thing. There are um, several medleys of top 40 pop songs, in addition to songs that I helped some of them write, that we also have been getting the band ready to play at this big show. So imagine this kind of showcase extravaganza in which these students are all getting ready to play a combination of original music and cover tunes, and it's kind of a big deal for these kids and also for the band. So everybody's been planning for this for months. So that's the kind of excitement you need to imagine as you hear about what happened next. The show is going live before an audience of hundreds of people on Monday and on Saturday, two days before the show. Sherry gets a phone call from the guy who is running the show, essentially the guy in charge. And it was a very unpleasant phone call. He told me that our guitar player, Chris Henderson, who is an electric guitar playing god, you know, he can play anything and he always adds such tasty you know, flavors to all of these, my students' songs, and all, and he can play exact how it sounds on the radio, all these other top 40 songs. Um, well, we found out that he had coronavirus. And so he was out. He was out for our show, for that rehearsal. And, you know, at first I thought, I, you know, I just thought, oh, that's, that's so terrible. Who can we call? Who can they call indeed? Now that conversation goes on for a while. The conversation between Sherry and the guy running the show, his name is Adam. And a terrible realization begins to dawn for Sherry. The more I talked through it with Adam, I, I, I realized why he was calling me. He's, he said, no one knows the students' songs as well as you Okay, do. says Sherry, and that might not be such a problem, except... I don't play the electric guitar. I really don't. He's like, you have an electric guitar? Yes, I do. I have one. I don't play it in front of people. Back and forth goes this argument for a while on the phone, and in the end, it doesn't take much more needling from Adam. Sherry begins to resign herself to the unsettling truth. I thought about it and I knew, like, what it, what it really needed, it really needed that electric Resigned guitar. to that awful truth, Sherry musters her courage and she shows up at the all-day Saturday rehearsal for this enormous show. And waiting for her are the charts, essentially the instructions for playing the music, kind of a combination of music notation and handwritten notes and pictures of complicated chords. And Sherry is trying to read these charts that were written by this amazing guitarist, the one who is out sick. And there's just no way. It was just dread. I mostly just looked at these charts with this sinking feeling of dread, and I tried to transpose. I, I put a capo on my guitar, and I tried to transpose as best Transposing, I could. Transposing, or in this case, trying to change the key the guitar plays in by applying a little device called a capo, and then interpreting the stuff written on the page into a key that she knows the fingerings for, and doing it all on the fly in the moment of the actual playing, and then wrestling with distortion pedals and other stuff connected by wires on the floor in front of her. Well, she goes home from that rehearsal just beaten down by the task she's taken on. In fact, it reminds her of a dream she used to have a lot, a nightmare. So I used to be a waitress, and I used to have this recurring nightmare that right before the restaurant was supposed to close, hundreds of people would come in. And the, the kitchen staff had gone home and, like, everybody had gone home, and I had to cook and serve all of this food, and more and more people came in. The closest thing I have had happen in my real life that makes me feel that way is the morning of that show. If you would have told me I had to jump out of an airplane that day, I would have been less nervous than I was that day. But, as so often happens when your back is against the wall, with one day before the concert, Sherry decides not to give up. On Sunday, I spent the entire day making myself new charts. And I had to, like, write myself a description of the chord. Like, do the fake B that you do, and then take this finger off at this point. Like, I actually wrote it on the chart. <laughs> they were the weirdest charts. And not only did she make new charts, but she also gave herself, well, a kind of pep talk. What I told myself, and this isn't going to sound very inspiring, but the thing I told myself is, whether this is a terrible day or a great day, 
by the time I'm laying back in this bed, at the end of the day, it will be done. <laughs> and so I thought, I'll live, you know, I, like, I can live through it, and I'll do the very best I can, and that's, that's all I can and do. And armed with those new charts, she shows up for the show. And it might be important right here to note that, as is so often the case when we have to face something bravely, we often don't have to face it alone. And so it was on this day as well. Sherry worked herself up to face the challenge, but she had help, too. My friend, my bass player friend, he noticed a couple of weird things I was playing and helped me fix my chart on a couple things. And my my husband the night before also helped me make an actual pedal board <laughs> that I could use. So I kind of was able to make like ambient swells of chords and without having to play like face melting solos because it just wasn't going to And happen. armed with her new charts, the advice from a friendly bass player and a homemade pedal board, it's time for action. The show begins. And it's not easy. I'd look at these charts, and every chart kind of felt like it was punching me in the face. Like when, when a new chart would, I'd pull up the new chart, uh, it's just like, oh, this one, you know, and I'd have to like go into the depths of my brain to figure out like, okay, is this the song that has that lick at the beginning or is it the other one, you know? It's so I kind of hacked my way through the, sh- the show. And I wish I could say that like it was this miracle where I didn't make any mistakes. When you make a mistake on an electric guitar, it's actually quite loud. <laughs> so it was really scary. It was it was a, it was a scary thing. In spite of the challenges, Sherry fights on through pop tune after pop tune, and when it's all over, like she said, it hasn't gone perfectly. But then something happens. After the show, during loadout or throughout the course of the day, as Sherry runs into her students, the ones she has accompanied today on the electric guitar, they all say kind of the same thing to her. I can't believe you did that. You're my hero. I can't believe you did that. You're my hero. And Sherry knows better than to interpret their praise as a compliment of her mad guitar skills. Sherry suspects that their praise might have to do with something even more important than face-melting solos. I hope the reason I was their hero was that I tried something that was harder than I knew how to do because I asked them to do those kind of things all the time. Like in class when they're writing songs and they have to share an idea that's scarier than they wanted to talk to everybody else about or even me. Um, or even to play that song in a show when they've never played an original song before. I thought, okay, now that I've played the electric guitar in front of hundreds of people without even knowing how to play, maybe you can do those things too. So yeah. That little moment when Sherry says, So yeah. That's like my favorite little moment in my whole conversation with Sherry. In that little moment, you hear the, so yeah, of satisfaction, the kind of, no big deal or the been there, done that of this whole experience. And it's not filled with bravado. It's just filled with the kind of happiness that she did the thing that she set out to do. But if you want a little more, then so yeah, Sherry is glad to give you more. Remember her little pep talk to herself about no matter how things went, she could lie in her bed after the concert, having lived through it and having done her best. She circles back to that. When I finished and I played that last note and the whole thing was done, like I had that feeling, like I did it. Like now I can go lay down in that bed and I will have done it. And I actually didn't do too bad of a job. Not too bad of a job. Well, there's a tiny bit of modesty there. And I say that because there's kind of a coda to this story. Remember the guy who was in charge of the show, Adam, the guy who first called her and asked her to play electric guitar in the show in the first place? Well, he had some, shall we say, final feedback on her performance. He wants me to be like an auxiliary guitar player on our next show. Like, we definitely are getting Chris back, but 
I think he might actually have me play. He might. I'm not going to hold him to this, and I certainly will not have feelings hurt. But he suggested that maybe another time, time he would have me do it again. And how does Sherry feel about that? Well, that's kind of the miracle of this kind of bravery, this kind of courage. After an experience like this electric guitar experience, Sherry has, well, she's changed. I think it would be fun if I, if I had time to prepare. The cool thing about it is I can picture myself playing the electric guitar in front of people now when I never was going to do it before. Sherry Call with a story about being brave. Courage comes in all shapes and sizes. And today, you've heard about the courage that saves a life in Pippa White's story about Ranger and the daring horseback rescue. And we've heard about the courage that tries something new in the story of our friend Sherry and her electric guitar. And we've even heard a story about the courage that keeps hanging on, even when it doesn't look like there's any hope in sight. A story about how a beloved story came to the rescue at a time like that. Maybe today's stories have helped bring to mind a memory or two for you. Maybe you're thinking of a person you haven't thought about in a long time, or an experience you had forgotten, a time when you were brave or saw somebody being brave. Me, I always say that you never know what's going to bring on a memory, and you never know what memory it's going to bring on. Weirdly, I'm thinking of a time when I asked my mom if she'd buy me a frosty root beer, my favorite, favorite treat, if I was brave enough to jump off the high dive at the community pool after my swimming lesson. I was six or seven years old, maybe, and the high dive was the scariest thing in town. I did it, though. It was the bravest thing I'd ever done. Though I hope now I've done things even braver, brave in ways that make a difference in the world around me and to the people I care about. What stories about being brave are you thinking about? Those stories are worth remembering and worth sharing. And we hope you do. It's been a pleasure for me to share this hour with you. Join us again on the Appleseed. You can find us at byuradio.org slash Appleseed or by downloading the BYU Radio app for ways to listen to all the great shows produced by BYU Radio. The Appleseed is pleased and proud to be part of that family of programs. You can also Google the Appleseed podcast. Find us and subscribe and leave us a review and rate us. It helps people find the show. I'm Sam Payne. And I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Seed.